and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, David. This morning, uh, I want to start by sharing with you about uh, an event that we had uh, last week. Many of you were able to be here for it. Uh, if you weren't, that's okay, uh, but we want to encourage you uh, to know that next Sunday we have a little bit of a special event as well. Uh, you may or may not know that this is kind of a, a big uh, time of year for a lot of people. There might be something going on that you're familiar with. Uh, next week is Christmas Eve on Sunday, and so as part of our service, we're going to be following service having a uh, nativity play, uh, but the nativity play has already happened once, and if you missed it, uh, I have a couple of pictures to share with you this morning. Um, the kids uh, put on a nativity play right up here on the the front of the auditorium uh, we had a bunch of little ones dressed as shepherds and wise guys I don't know if they were wise men but they were definitely a group of wise guys um, we had Mary and Joseph we had some wonderful narrators uh, and in addition to that uh, we had a little bit of a Christmas party and so I want to share with you some pictures here uh, you can see we had we had a lot of internalizing learning about the birth of Christ, and uh, I thought that was kind of a wonderful opportunity. Uh, Heather did a tremendous job in directing the kids. Uh, someone said that our, our angels looked like they could have been out of like the electric light parade at Disneyland or something, and they were fantastic, kind of blew everyone away, kind of an awe moment. Uh, we also had uh, our, our dear friend Santa join us upstairs for the uh, somewhat more um, relaxed portion of the evening. Uh, a lot of really wonderful young ones got uh, pictures with Santa. Uh, families were able to sit and visit with him for a little while. Um, you can see that a lot of kids from our congregation, but not just kids from our congregation, a lot of children uh, from the neighborhood also joined us for this, um, and some youth group kids as well. Uh, perhaps the most important part, though, is that one of our elders had a visit with Santa. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean? I'm on the naughty list, Santa. Every, every year, uh, Greg does go over and visit with Santa, and I think he has ulterior motives. He's not asking about toys and presents, but... Uh, Greg has a very expressive face. I don't know if you've realized this, and every once in a while you can catch a really good picture of him looking very concerned. So, uh, sorry, Greg, we had to put it in there. Kyle and I found this middle of the week, and Kyle's like, I know what we're doing with this. I'm, I'm roping Kyle into this so that if I get in trouble, Kyle is with me. Um, we had a wonderful time. I really want to encourage you next Sunday, again, following service, We'll have Friendship 20, and then the kids are going to do their nativity play again. Uh, we're going to record it that Sunday for parents who want to be able to have a copy later, um, and so we'll be sure to share that with you. But I want to let you know it was, it was a really well-done nativity play, and I hear that the second showing is going to be even better. And so uh, come and join us for that. Uh, we know that many will be traveling, but if you're not, you should be here next Sunday. Um, we are continuing a series that we began two weeks ago, and Kyle kicked off for us. We're looking at these titles that Isaiah gives to the expected Messiah. And if you remember last week, we talked about this idea of Jesus being a wonderful counselor, that his counsel is beyond what we could expect or imagine out of a, an ordinary person. And when we have trouble and trial in life, it would make sense for us to turn 
to the best counselor that we could possibly have. Now, sometimes our wonderful counselor acts through his church, and so I want to encourage you to remember that you don't just have to go to the, the Bible, you should go to the Bible, but you don't just go to Scripture in order to find support and counsel from God. You go to his people as well. Um, we're continuing, though, looking at this idea that Jesus is all of these things, and the gift that is the Son is more than just one aspect of his personality. Sometimes we get very focused on one part of Jesus's ministry, his life. We think about him maybe as a good teacher, right? That might be the wonderful counselor section. His advice is the best advice. If I apply his teaching, it will be the best teaching. But Jesus is more than just a good teacher. If he were just a good teacher, his life, his death, his resurrection wouldn't mean what it does mean. In fact, perhaps the most important title that's given in here, and, and sometimes it's dangerous to say that something is the most important in a section, but I, I think it's true of this particular passage. The most important title Jesus is given by Isaiah is Mighty God. As we read through these four titles that are given, these names that Jesus is described with, this is perhaps the one that is the most controversial, historically speaking. This is the one that would have been a stumbling block for the Israelites as they, they were encountering Jesus and the claims that he made about himself, and more importantly, the claims that his followers made about him after his re uh, resurrection and ascension. These are core titles about Jesus' identity, but this is perhaps the one that is the most difficult for non-believers to tackle. And so this morning, I want to look at three passages that I think reveal the mighty God aspect of who Jesus is. Uh, they're all related in some way, and uh, perhaps they came to my mind. I've been listening to a, a podcast series on the theme of chaos in the Bible, specifically the chaos dragon, and this idea that there is, there is a mighty beast that we are all combating, and death is a part of chaos, and disorder is a part of chaos, and in the ancient Near Eastern mind, the thing that was the most chaotic that you could encounter was the ocean the sea, the waters. They were mysterious. They were terrifying. For the Israelite people, they, they were not global navigators. They did not go out on the high sea. And in fact, even the Sea of Galilee could be a terrifying place for them, which is interesting because most of Jesus' ministry revolves around this, this sea that he walks alongside, that he crosses over in a boat. And sometimes we take it for granted that Jesus is taking his disciples across the waters. See, most of the time as a fisherman, you would go out a little ways from shore and cast your nets, but you wouldn't leave sight of the shore. You would cast your nets into the waters, you would try to pull in what you could for the day, and before it got dark, you would come back in. It would be dangerous to be out on the waters. In fact, the Sea of Galilee was known for being tremendously dangerous, that there were sudden swells and winds and waves that would come over the sea and cause people a lot of danger and, and, and trouble. It was not a place that was friendly to those who wanted to cross. But multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus not only requests that they cross over the river, or over the sea, rather, but he commands that they do it. 
And so we're going to look at three passages this morning. I want to start with Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 25. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and pull that out, uh, and we're going to take a look at it this morning. Luke 8, verses 22 through 25. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in danger. And they they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. I want you to think again of the imagination, the, the interior world of the Jews in the first century. At this point, you know, the, the crossing of the Mediterranean had more or less become a common sort of thing for the, the Romans. Uh, they would travel uh, from Rome to Egypt, but they usually stayed mostly along the shorelines. It it was really a long trip, but it was a little bit faster than going by foot to sail the shoreline of the Mediterranean. Getting out to one of the sea, uh, uh, the islands in the midst of the sea was a little bit more dangerous, but it was something that they were capable of doing. But, But the Romans were unique in this. Most nations at the time did not traverse the high seas. This was a terrifying place to be, and the Mediterranean, like the Sea of Galilee was not always particularly forgiving. If you read the book of Acts, you see that Paul becomes shipwrecked, that his boat is cast into a storm, and that there's trouble and trial on the waves. And Paul actually talks about multiple shipwrecks that he encounters. John, of the Revelation book, John had experienced multiple storms out on the seas. There are Christian traditions that talk about how terrifying it would have been for most to go out onto the sea, but not for the disciples of Jesus because they knew who they were following. And here we have this moment before Jesus is fully understood by his disciples, if it's even possible to fully understand Jesus, where they're sitting in a boat with him, and it's, it's almost like this callback to the story of Jonah. I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of Jonah, he's kind of not doing what God has called him to do, and he gets on a boat to go as far away from God as he possibly can. And he gets on the boat, and he sails for a little while, and a storm comes, and no matter what the sailors do, they can't really control the boat, and so they start deciding whether or not maybe someone in the boat is being punished for the things that they have done, and they cast lots to determine who it is, and ultimately, only after it's kind of fallen to Jonah does he admit who he is and what he's done and why it is that he's in trouble and why it is that the boat's about to sink all on his behalf, but he's been below sleeping And so we have this little moment here where Jesus is in the boat with the disciples, sleeping, and the storm is raging around them. And and we would think, you know, maybe someone in the boat needs to be punished for the things that they've done. Maybe this is God's retribution for someone in this boat being sinful. But Jesus wakes up from his sleep, and he's like, "What, what are you all worried about? And he rebukes the wind and the waves. And it stops. And they marvel at this. 
Jesus' words to his disciples here, where is your faith? Where is your faith? There's something interesting about Jesus asking them where their faith is in all of this. And in fact, it becomes a repeated theme as we see Jesus encountering storms with his disciples. This theme of faith and where it happens to be. Where is it within you? And more importantly, where is it placed? If you take a look with me, uh, oh, that's not right. Okay, well, let's read John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. Over the course of a week, I rearrange my slides, and sometimes one just gets astray. And so, John chapter 6, we're going to look at another instance here. Take a look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began, uh, uh, became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, if you look at a map, the Sea of Galilee doesn't look all that big, but it's wider than three or four miles. It's a, it's a pretty substantial piece of water. There are points, of course, at which you could probably cross from one shore to the other in less than three or four miles. But there are ways out on the water. They're in the middle of the sea. And the interesting thing about this is that they are alone. It is just them. Chronologically speaking, we, we think this probably takes place after Jesus has been in the boat with them and calmed the storm. We don't know for sure. John and his chronology are, are a little less, uh, chronology is less important to John, we should say. But what ends up happening here is that Jesus arrives in the midst of the storm. In the first story, he's right there with them, right? Asleep in the bottom of the boat. And, and it would stand to reason that next time that Jesus is in the bottom of the boat, sleeping, maybe sawing a few logs. I don't know if Jesus snored, but he was human, so it would stand to reason the next time that he's there with them in the midst of the storm, they'd be a little less concerned. It would be a less terrifying situation. But the second time that they encounter a storm out on the sea, Jesus is not in the boat with them. He's not a quick shake to wake up. And we can kind of put ourselves in their shoes and understand how when Jesus doesn't really seem to be present, maybe, maybe the storms feel a bit much. We feel a little overwhelmed, and, and maybe like Habakkuk a few weeks ago, we asked God, where are you in this? Jesus, what are you doing right now? Why aren't you showing up? And yet in the midst of the storm, Jesus does show up. He, he's walking across the water confidently. The, the language here is not as though like he's timidly stepping across. The, the Greek is very clear. He is 
walking across the water. There is no struggle in his step. It is not a terrifying thing for Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Now, other accounts of this situation, the disciples are afraid of who they see out on the water. They think it might be a ghost, and Jesus identifies himself. But here, he just tells them, it is I. Do not be afraid. It doesn't tell us how they respond to these words. But it does tell us that Jesus gets in the boat with them, and then they arrive where they need to be. Immediately. This is John actually taking Mark's favorite word and using it in his gospel. Mark is always telling us, and immediately Jesus went here, and immediately Jesus did that, and immediately here John wants us to know this is not something that happened a couple hours later. Immediately they arrived at the other side of the sea. From chaos and wind and storm to immediate deliverance. And Jesus is just strolling on the water. In the midst of that, again, it is I, do not be afraid. And then we have this this third one that's been up on the screen here for a little while, Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to ask you to turn there with me as well if you have your Bibles. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. And here Matthew gets in on using Mark's favorite word. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. Now, what's been happening before this? He's, he's had this long day of preaching and a multitude of people sitting there on the shore listening to him preach, and they've, they've grown hungry, and Jesus has the disciples feed them as he, he breaks the, the bread for them, as he feeds the multitude, and it's a long day. I, I can imagine that it had to be a long day. They gather up food, and, and it's, it's a whole process. It's exhausting. I, I don't know if you've ever spoken to, like, hundreds or thousands of people, but there is something about an event along those lines that just drains you. Sometimes speaking to 150 people on a Sunday morning can drain you. And Jesus and the disciples have spent all day corralling a multitude 5,000. Jesus is ready for some time by himself, and he tells them to get in the boat and cross to the other side. Now, chronologically, they have seen Jesus calm the storm. Most likely, at this point, they have seen Jesus walk upon the water. And if this is, in fact, a separate account... And John is not just excluding Peter from the narrative as he's writing. This is now the third time that Jesus has sent them across the waters. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Okay, so this is, this is the, the event of the feeding. And Jesus goes across the waters in a boat on his own. So they know Jesus could potentially go in another boat on his own. When he commands them to go across the waters, 
They've seen him walk across the water, and they also assume maybe he could just, you know, float himself across. They're not particularly concerned about how Jesus will arrive at the other side. Immediately he made the disciples, this is verse 22, get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, evening being the dark time of the day, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way away from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Notice what is being said here. They're, they're making little progress. The wind is against them. They're crossing over to the other side, and they just can't get there. It's gone from the evening to the fourth watch of the night. This is a long trial out on the waters. Even for fishermen who have spent their lives on the sea, this has to be a little disheartening. And yes, they know Jesus can calm the storm. And yes, they know that he can walk on the water and probably resolve this, but they've been out there fighting this storm for quite a while. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. But Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And then when they got in the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I want you to think about these stories here that are told, the ways in which they are told, what they reveal to us about who Jesus is, what they reveal to us maybe about our own struggles and trials that we face. There are times that we're in the boat, right? We're out on the ocean, and we feel pretty confident because Jesus is close at hand. Yeah, I'm facing some trouble here, but I know Jesus can resolve this. We have a lot of confidence in him, or, or maybe... Maybe like the disciples, this is a whole new trial that we've never really faced before, and we're a little doubtful about what Jesus might do. Maybe we feel like we're alone out on the waters. And yeah, when Jesus is present, when he's near, when he's like making himself known, when I can hear his breathing as he sleeps, I feel okay with him being in the boat with me through this trial but I'm, I'm not even sure where he is right now. And we find ourselves shaken by that fact, by that reality that, that we can't lay our eyes on him. And then we see him, and perhaps we have faith at that point. 
Or maybe we're like the disciples, and it's not an immediate solution to all the problems that we faced, and what we see is a storm right in front of us that we cannot pass through, and we are putting all of our effort, all of our energy, all of our strength in trying to cross this sea, and it's been hours. It has been such a long time. And we are filled with fear so that even when we see Jesus coming across the water, we're a little terrified. And yet, in each of these scenarios, in each of these stories, Jesus is unfazed. Jesus himself is completely unafraid completely undisturbed, completely in control. Historically speaking, the waters are a terrifying place. We've mentioned that several times this morning, but I want you to think about this for just a moment here. What, what better way for Jesus to show to his disciples this, this image of the mighty God to control their biggest fear, to subdue it, to walk through it like it's nothing, and then to invite them to do the same. I don't know what your biggest fears are. I, I don't know what you struggle with the most. I don't know what the storms of your life are. Some of you have shared those things with me before, and I've had opportunities to share with others the storms that I've faced, but I want to be completely clear with you this morning. Whatever your sea and storm happens to be, Jesus is the master of it. Maybe, maybe your sea, maybe your storm is the loss of a loved one, Maybe you are so deep in the midst of it right now and you are just hurting and aching and terrified and you have not come out the other side yet and it feels like things are just beating against you over and over and over again and you cannot see the other shore. You do not know how you will come out on the other side. I promise you that Jesus is the master even of this storm. Maybe you're struggling with something internal. Maybe it is inside your head, depression, anxiety. Maybe it is restlessness. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's something that you, you've built up for yourself. It's, it's a storm you have personally created. Or maybe it's a storm that doesn't exist except inside your head. Jesus is the master of that as well. And it doesn't mean that these aren't things that we have to struggle with and face. Jesus sometimes lets us face these trials. And sometimes he invites us to face them as he would face them. Sometimes he tells us, I need you to get out of the boat and start walking. Now Peter, Peter specifically asks, call me out of the boat. If it's really you, if you are who you say you are, Call me out of the boat. And I want to be clear with you. Sometimes we dog on Peter for this because he gets out of the boat and he starts walking and then he realizes what he's doing and he begins to sink. He's the only one that got out of the boat. And he did it by his own request. Peter 
Ask God to allow you to walk on the storm, to walk on the water, to face the fear that stands right in front of you. And when you do, don't forget the reason for your boldness. It's the moment that Peter loses sight of Christ, the moment that he forgets that it was him who asked to do this in the first place. The moment that he forgets that the one that he's walking to is the one who has created and calmed the storm. That he begins to sink. Now I want to be clear. There are trials in life that we need other people to come into and alongside and work with us and walk with us. There are trials that we're going to face that we're not called to face alone, right? And maybe it would have been better if Peter had a hand to hold when he got out of the boat and like, hey, John, come on, we're doing this together, right? But we have to remember, even as we are seeking help in the trials and storms of life, that even as it rages around us, even if the winds don't stop, even as the waters are rising, even as the winds are pounding against us, Jesus still is the master of them. He may take us immediately to the shore. He may calm it right then and there. Or he may allow us to stand in the midst of the chaos and fix our eyes on him. But in all three instances, Jesus is the mighty God. He is the one who has created all things. He is the one who has mastery over all things. Now, there are other times within Scripture that we can find Jesus displaying boldly who he is as the one who bears the title mighty God. But to me, these are the most reassuring that even in the midst of the storm, Jesus remains who I know him to be when he calms it, and Jesus remains who he has always been. There's no diminishing him. There is no taking away who he is. There is no moment in which he is less because of my experience of the trials of life. That should give us the confidence to walk forward to ask him to invite us out of the boat. As I said this morning, I, I don't know where you're at. And I don't know what your personal storms and trials are. I don't know if, if you maybe are, are in a blissful state, right? It's high noon and you're out on the middle of the water and everything is peaceful and calm and Jesus is just sitting there telling you stories as you're casting your net. That's great. If that's where you're at, wonderful. Maybe you don't need this sermon this morning and your confidence in Jesus as the mighty God is the stillness and calm in your life. But I don't think that's the case for most people. I think for a lot of us, we are at least facing a pretty significant drizzle. We live in the state of Oregon, by the way. I have, don't know if you've looked outside recently. Regardless of what your weather might be, what the climate you're facing is, what, what trouble or trial you're encountering happens to be, I want you to remember that Jesus is mighty God. 
maybe this year, in the midst of the Christmas chaos, what you need to remember is the gift that was given is the God who is bigger than the storm you're facing. This can be a difficult season for a lot of people. This can be a really hard time of year. Financially, it can be difficult for a lot of people. Some of us overextend ourselves. Some of us experience uh, fresh grief that we've felt in the past. Some of us experience uh, a sense of isolation or separation from people that we love and care about. And if that's where you're at today, that's where you're at in the coming weeks, if that's where you happen to be in all of this, I want to remind you to fix your eyes on Jesus. To remember that he is the one who can calm the storm. And then maybe grab a hand and get out of the boat. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we like Jesus, the great teacher. And we like to be able to, to take some rules and some moral uh, teachings and apply them to our lives and, and affirm that, yes, Jesus is our wonderful counselor, and when we follow his instructions, our, our life stays firm. But as we learned last week, God, we know that just following the teachings of Jesus doesn't prevent the storm. It helps us weather the storm. And Father, sometimes we're facing the storm, and, and there's not even a moral question, and we need desperately to be reminded that you are bigger than the storm that we're facing, that you can calm the storm, that you can walk confidently through it, and that you can even call us to do the same. And Father, for whoever this morning is facing a trial, a storm in life, and is feeling beaten down and tossed about by the waves, I pray that you would give them eyes that are locked on the one who strides across the storm. We thank you for your, your wonderful gift, the son that you have given to us, the child that was born, and the fullness of God that is realized in him. We pray this morning that you would help us to celebrate that as we worship. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have need of the church, I'd invite you to, uh, to let us know. If you're experiencing a storm and you need someone to walk alongside you and hold your hand as you fix your eyes on Jesus, uh, we will have uh, some elders here that would be happy to visit with you. There are some ladies that would pray with you. I'm going to be up here on the front row. You can come sit down by me if you want, uh, or you can meet someone in the back of the auditorium. Let's stand and sing.